All right, I think I've shared this with you guys fairly recently, but um, I have a bad habit when it comes to sharing the gospel. I get so engrossed in talking about the cross, why it was necessary, what it accomplished, how from the Old Testament, mankind has been steeped in their sins, and, and yet the Old Testament is also simultaneously uh, pointing us towards uh, the coming Messiah, that perfect sacrifice. We see sacrifices over and over and over again be insufficient. And, and I just like I'm ramping up to the cross and how awesome it is and how Jesus accomplished a great work on the cross. And then I tack on like a sentence about the resurrection. And I say, oh, yeah, and he rose from the dead, too, if I mention it at all. And, and as I've studied the resurrection more and more, I've come to realize that to do that is to neglect a significant part of the story. So, so here's what I mean by that. Maybe I can tell you a story to kind of illustrate that. So imagine with me in your mind's eye, this young kid, he's a shepherd, he's out tending the flocks, and one day he's summoned back to his dad's house, and okay, that's kind of strange, don't I have a job to do? And uh, when he walks in the front door, there's the prophet Samuel, kind of the big wig in Israel, and Samuel's in his house, and all of his brothers are lined up, you know, in front of Samuel, and then here's this kid, and he gets pulled aside, and Samuel, that maybe someone he's never met before, anoints him to be the next king of Israel. Who are we talking about here? David, yeah. And David's like, whoa, this is like a complete rags to riches story, right? Someone who was unlikely, even amongst his own family members, is now anointed the next king of Israel. But it gets even better because here's David a little while later going to the battlefield to deliver some supplies to his brothers. And while he's there, all of a sudden, this literal giant of a man comes out and challenges the people of Israel and like throws down the gauntlet and says, send your best warrior over out here to fight me. And uh, all these real warriors are terrified, but here's David, this teenager, the anointed king of Israel, who's like, I faced worse. There was one time a bear came and tried attacking some of the sheep of my flock and I took him out. A lion tried the same thing and I did that too. What's a giant who's defying the armies of the living God? And so David, he uh, tries on this armor, but it's not really for him. He instead's like, oh, I'm going to stick with what I know. And he takes his sling, some stones, and a staff. And he goes out to meet this giant while these grown men are terrified and cowering in fear. Here's a teenager going to face Goliath. Imagine in your mind's eye as David approaches Goliath. These birds circling overhead. And Goliath says, tauntingly, see these birds? They're going to be eating your flesh here in just a minute. This is a high-stakes battle. This isn't like just one of these guys is going to go, you know, his ego got hurt a little bit, and he's going to walk away with his tail between his legs, so to speak. No, someone is going to die here. And the loser of this battle, their nation is going to become enslaved, the victors. And as Goliath is taunting David, David steadies himself, tries to calm his hard feet, and he says, listen, you've defied the living God. And he begins to pick up his sling and 
twirl it very, very slowly, kind of picking out his target where he's going to throw this stone, trying to calm his heartbeat as the sling swings faster and faster and faster. And yeah, David ruled for 40 years, and he was a pretty good king. If this were a kid's class, I guess I'd all be like, what happened? You kidding me? You, you left out the best part of the story. Come on. I think that's what happens when I neglect to talk about the resurrection. And I think why I personally don't often include it in my presentation of the gospel is that I just don't know why it was important. Maybe I haven't been taught all that well. Maybe I just haven't connected all the dots in my mind. But I'm going to argue this morning, the resurrection is incredibly important. We did touch on some of this last week, if you remember right at the very end, looking at 1 Corinthians 15. There's a whole lot more for us to uncover. First of all, regarding the importance of the resurrection, it's important because it proves Jesus's deity. Look at what Romans chapter 1 says. Talking about Jesus, it says that he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from And I do want to clarify something about that verse right there. If you read it just very casually, you could misread it and think that only at the resurrection was Jesus declared to be the Son of God, as if somehow he wasn't before this. And then at the resurrection, God's like, I declare you to be my son. You're the Son of God now. No, that is a misreading of this verse. We know that Jesus has always been the Son of God. What this is actually communicating is that the resurrection, we might say, confirmed or validated or proved that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. It proved that his previous claims about his identity were true. I want to pause here for a second and just draw to your attention this idea that throughout history, people have claimed be God. It's actually something that's not all that uncommon, and it's been going on for like thousands of years now. Uh, if you think all the way back to like ancient Egypt, the pharaohs were considered a deity. If you think to like the time of the Romans, it was the Caesar who was considered a god. I actually watched a documentary type thing recently And even in the last hundred years, it was like a countdown of the top 10 people who have claimed to be God. And these guys all lived in the last century. It was honestly a little troubling to see how these people had appropriated some of the terms of Christianity and had wielded their influence and power to harm people even. Uh, There was one guy in particular, his name was Jose Luis. He seemed to have a pretty big following in Florida Uh, At one time, he claimed to be Jesus. At one time, he claimed to be the Apostle Paul. He was requiring people to get 666 tattooed on themselves. And and while some of you guys are like gasping at this, uh, he had a significant following. He had thousands of people who, who followed this guy. 
he was put on air, on TV, able, able to just promote his message. So he's making all of these blasphemous claims, claiming to be God, claiming to be Jesus. And then the video reports this about Jose Luis, that he died in 2013 of cirrhosis of the liver. Now listen to this, what they conclude. A condition very much at odds with his so-called immortality. I find it fascinating that even an unsaved secular YouTube channel can see someone die and say that is at odds with the claims you've been making. You've been saying you're immortal, yet you died of a liver disease? The reality is that someone who claims to be God doesn't get sick and die, right? People can talk about it all they want. They can lead astray large groups of people, thousands in the case of Jose Luis. But as we say, talk is cheap, right? We want to see some action. Give us some evidence, some proof that you are indeed God. Jesus also made claims to be God. We, we've examined some of these in our previous lessons, but I'm just going to review probably the two most well-known ones. The first is in John 8, when Jesus says to a group of people, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And what Jesus is saying here is he's equating himself with the I am of Exodus when God reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush and says, my name is I am who I am, Jesus is saying, yeah, that's me too. He's claiming to be Jehovah God. And what is the people's response? Anyone remember when he says this? Yeah, they say it's blasphemy. They pick up stones to kill him. Here's someone who's claiming to be God. It's deserving of death. How about this? In John 10, 30, Jesus says this. I and the Father are one. And again, same reaction. The people pick up stones to kill him. He's equating himself with God. This can't be true. This can't be happening. We have consequences for those types of claims. Now, we're not as dramatic in our response when people make claims like that. We don't find the nearest you know, rock and chuck it at someone. We're content to just kind of sit back and let time run its course. If someone claims to be God these days or say, I know when the Lord is returning or I have a prophecy from God, we'll just sit back, watch our clock. When that date passes on the calendar, we're like, okay, clearly you are not telling the truth here. When someone dies, okay, clearly you are not God. Jesus' story starts out much the same way. Here's a man who, as we've seen twice now in the scriptures, claims to be God. He accumulates a large following of people. And Jesus, like Jose Luis, like all these other guys before and after him, died. And if he had stayed dead, we probably would have looked back at his legacy as a revolutionary teacher. I mean, here's someone who during a Roman occupancy 
rather than using his influence to garner a large following and to lead a revolution against Rome. Instead, he had more of like a, what we would call a grassroots movement, kind of organic as he just kind of got a couple guys around him. And instead of worrying about you know, their combat ability, he said, hey, how about we think about our hearts and our minds? How about we transform ourselves from the inside out? That's kind of cool. I don't think the world has a problem with that. We might, if Jesus had just stayed dead, we might just lump him in the category of people who had a lot of charisma, who did generally pretty well in life. At best, he was misguided in his claim to be God. At worst, he's mentally unstable. However, unlike everyone else, Jesus did not stay dead. And this is what differentiates him from every other person has claimed to be God. Three days later, he rose from the dead. From the dead. Let me remind you again what Romans says about this event. In his resurrection from the dead, he was declared to be the son of God in power. The resurrection proves the deity of Jesus and his claims and validates what you have been saying is true. The resurrection changes everything. He's not simply a revolutionary teacher. He's God in the flesh. And when he made this claim to be the I am of Exodus, rather than picking up stones to kill him, the people should have fallen on their face in worship of Jesus. I want to tease out the implications of the resurrection just a little bit further here. Since Jesus is God, his teachings are not that of some professor or guru who we can say, hey, thanks. Those are nice ideas, but I could take them or leave them. No, if Jesus is God and his resurrection proves him to be, then his teachings are the very words of God. And so when he says things in the New Testament, when he clarifies the commandments of the old about lust and anger and oaths and divorce, those aren't just things that we can take or leave. Those are things we have to obey. Those are the very words of God. When Jesus makes predictions or prophecies, we might call them, about his second coming, he's coming back. The resurrection proves that. And we have to be ready, as Jesus warned us, perhaps most significantly, when Jesus says this in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Then that's the only way. You see, we've had a lot of people in history, Jose Luis, you name them, who've said what? Follow me. I'm the way to salvation. And what happens? They die. And to this day, their flesh is rotting in a grave. And if you placed your faith in one of these false gods, that is the outcome for you too. However, if you have placed your faith in Christ, the object of our hope is alive. Look at what First Peter has to say about this. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And if our hope were just in another man, another one of these guys who's right now dead, it'd be pretty pitiful for us, huh? Are we placing our faith in a dead guy? Our hope is in the God-man who has demonstrated his power over death itself, has demonstrated that he is truly able to save and deliver us from sin and its consequences by rising from the dead. He's alive. And this leads us to the second implication of the resurrection, that we will one day rise like Christ. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians 15. Perhaps you remember we were here last week, actually, answering the question, what is at stake if Jesus did not rise from the dead? Is there really any consequence to that? And Paul says, uh, yeah, there are a lot of consequences if Jesus did not rise from the dead. Let's just run through those real quick. Verse 17. Paul says, and if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is futile. Stop there. Paul says if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith, it's in vain. It's worthless. It's of no use to you if Christ did not rise from the dead. And then he continues on. And you are still in your sins. Christ has not rise from the dead. You have not been justified. You have not been declared righteous. What Paul is saying is, listen, dead people cannot save you. Placing your faith in a dead person is pretty pointless. They have no power. They can't do anything. They are confined to a little hole in the ground. So if Christ didn't rise from the dead, the object of your faith is pointless. You're still in your sins. And therefore, in verse 18, if Christ has not been raised, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Paul's saying, when you die, rather than being ushered into the presence of your God and Savior, Christ hasn't risen from the dead, you have perished. You're in for a rude awakening. In verse 19, if the above is true, Paul concludes, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. It is truly a pitiful thing to have placed your hope in something that cannot save you. To have lived your whole life according to this book, changed the way that you are inclined to live, and then to find out it was all for naught. Christ didn't rise from the dead. There's no point. I actually was just reading about uh, this guy, uh, Al Mohler, wrote an article recently discussing this person who, as is quoted of him, loves Jesus and believes in him passionately. 
and yet the same individual denies that Jesus rose from the dead. And Al Mohler is just kind of scratching his head like, uh, you mean to tell me that you love and passionately believe in a dead and crucified Jesus? The reality is, is what? This person does not believe in the Jesus of the Bible. He loves and believes in a figment of his imagination. The Jesus of the scriptures rose from the dead. And in doing so, gives us hope of one day rising from the dead, ensures that our sins have been forgiven. They're inextricably linked. If you remember, we concluded that the resurrection is of critical importance then to our faith. We, we cannot ignore this doctrine. And that's what Paul was getting at here in the first part of 1 Corinthians 15. Maybe you don't remember quite how we got there. Let's look at verse 12. Paul says, Now if Christ is proclaimed is, rise, is raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? It, it seems from what we can conclude based off of this chapter here, that there was a group of people, they believed that Jesus rise from the dead, no problem. However, they denied that everyone else would one day be rise from the dead. For whatever reason, they just denied that. And Paul says, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, it's not one or the other here. It's both and. If Jesus rise from the dead, you will too. If he did not rise from the dead, forget about it. You're not either. And that's really what we're trying to hone in on here then, is that we will one day rise like Christ, our living hope. Let us follow the argument that Paul makes here in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 20. We read, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. I want to pause here for just a second and point out a word or a phrase that maybe we've never considered before about Jesus, and that is that he is called the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, maybe that's a little bit strange to you, that statement. Um, the Bible actually uses language like this a couple of other times. In Colossians chapter 1 and in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus is called the firstborn of those raised from the dead. Uh, in Acts, I've got it right here, in Acts 26, it's said about Christ, uh, that the Christ might suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And perhaps you're scratching your head, seeing a bit of a problem here with Jesus being called the first fruits, the firstborn, specifically the language here in Acts 26, that he is the first to rise from the dead, what question should you have? What doesn't quite make sense to you about that statement? Uh, that's not what I'm thinking. Anyone else? Yes, Brandon's got his finger on the pulse here. Uh, technically, Jesus wasn't the first person to rise from the dead. Who else was raised from the dead before Jesus besides Lazarus? Anyone else think of anyone? Yes. There's a handful of other ones, people who were raised from the dead. Uh, Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. Um, 
both Elisha and Elijah were involved in raising someone from the dead. There's actually a guy in the Old Testament who is thrown like on the bones of one of those guys, Elijah or Elisha, and he raises from the dead. And so to read here in Acts that Jesus is the first to rise from the dead uh, seems at first like a contradiction. And so I don't think we can think of this as a title of sequence, as in if he was the first ever to be raised from the dead. However, commentators have pointed out that Jesus' resurrection was the first of its kind, that it was unique from other resurrections. And I want to explore that just for a minute here. What makes Jesus' resurrection the first of its kind? What makes it unique? Well, first of all, these other people who were raised from the dead, they died again, right? It's kind of strange to think about. Lazarus, after he was raised from the dead, lived who knows how long, the scriptures don't tell us, and then he experienced something that we only expect to experience once, he actually experienced it twice, death. He's like, I'm no stranger to this, I've done this before. Jesus will never die again. His resurrection is unique in that sense, whereas it was very evident that death still had a grip on Lazarus. Death still had its clutches on Jairus' daughter when she died a second time. What was evident about Jesus? He broke free of death. Look what Romans says about this. Romans chapter 6 says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Revelation chapter 1 says this about him. Jesus himself speaking says, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Look here in your text at verse 26. We see this kind of said again, that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. In his description of everything that is going to be put under subjection to Christ, death is the very last thing. The resurrected Jesus has authority over death. He'll never die. Again, but there's another idea that makes his resurrection unique. Look back at verse 20 where he's called the first fruits. Maybe that is jogging just the slightest memory in your mind of something from the Old Testament. Where have you heard that word first fruits before? Anyone remember? I thought I heard someone say. Johnny? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Johnny's got it exactly right. There was an offering called like the offering of the first fruits or something like that. And what it was is that the Israelites would give the first of their harvest for that year to the Lord with the expectation that whatever followed in the harvest was theirs. They could keep, they could eat, turn a profit on, whatever. And so scholars have taken this Old Testament idea of first fruits and this New Testament phrasing of it here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And they've concluded that if Jesus is the first of the resurrection, then what also must be true? There's more to come. 
guys, and this is what makes Jesus' resurrection unique. No one could place their faith or their hope in the resurrected Lazarus and expect to be raised again someday. Lazarus died again. No one could place their hope or their trust in Jairus' daughter and expect, yes, one day I too will rise like Lazarus or Jairus' daughter. No, but those who place their faith in Christ, the risen, resurrected Jesus, that's where our hope lies. And that one man who will never die again and who after follows him comes a whole host of people. Look at verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has, also, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. And we've already considered this picture in this series uh, maybe a month or so ago where you have Adam, kind of this family tree, if you will, of everyone in Adam dies. And yet for those who take refuge in Christ and follow him, they get moved out of this association with Adam and death, and they get put under Christ and have hope of life eternal. But in keeping with the theme of the first fruits, there's a sequence to this. Look at verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. And I want to ask you it's Christ first, then us, but when? Are we raised? When does this resurrection that we will follow Christ, and when does that happen for us according to this text of Scripture? At his coming. Yeah. And we get a description of what this resurrection will look like a little further down in the chapter. Look at verse 51. Where we read, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Now, the Bible does not give us a whole lot of detail about what our resurrected bodies will look like. However, from this text of scripture, we do get one defining characteristic of a resurrected body, and that is that it is imperishable, that it is immortal. We have followed, as Philippians chapter 3 says, um, we share this characteristic with Jesus. Philippians 3 says that he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Luke chapter 20, Jesus says this about those who are resurrected. They cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. And when this happens, when we receive our new bodies, look at what then is fulfilled in verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And Paul is saying here, death will cease to exist. It can exist. We have these immortal bodies. 
And I want us to stop and think about this defeat of death. Death is all we know. It's the one thing in life that seems inevitable. We don't know what the future holds for certain. We do know death is a part of it. And this has been the case since the garden when God told Adam and Eve, eat of this fruit of the tree and what are the consequences? You die. And what do they do? They eat the fruit and they begin to die. There's a spiritual death, there's a physical death. All of a the sudden, there is an expiration date on their bodies when they disobey God. From that point forward, physical death and spiritual death have plagued us. Hebrews chapter 2 says that it is the prospect of death that has struck fear into our hearts. Uh, Let's see. Romans chapter 6 says that it is our due wage for our transgressions against God. Death has claimed the lives of billions and billions of individuals despite their best efforts to evade it. But on this resurrection day at Christ's return, Then will come to pass what is written, that death has been defeated. It will no longer be a threat to us any longer. It will never lay claim on us again. It had no temporary victory for a time, but it has been eclipsed by an even greater victory. The victory of what Christ has accomplished, the first fruits of the resurrection. And something happens when we understand what the death of Christ has actually accomplished for us. Something changes in our thinking about death. Verse 55 kind of describes it for us. It says, oh, death, where's your sting? The sting is taken out of death. What had once been so fearful, such an unknown, so uncertain to us, it's gone. And verse 56 describes part of what makes death so scary is that the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. And the reality is, is that what makes death scary is not maybe the event itself, but what comes after. That death is necessitated by sin, the breaking of God's law, and the judgment and the condemnation that follows death. For unsaved people, this is just a gateway of suffering in this life to suffering in the next. Uh, Of course, it's nothing to be excited about. Of course, it has a sting to it. But for those of us who have taken refuge in Christ, we know only victory. Look what verse 57 says. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ has secured our victory in fulfilling the law when we could not in bearing the wrath of God poured out on himself for the sins of mankind, and rising from the dead, demonstrating that death has been defeated. The grave could not contain him, but perhaps even the larger point going on here is that the power of sin has been broken, and the consequences of judgment poured on sin have already been taken care of by Christ. That death is not a gateway to more suffering. 
Jesus has victory over it. He's abolished sin and its consequences. And so death promises life with him. We've been declared righteous, not based on our own merit, but on the merit of Christ. And his resurrection ensures that our future resurrection will happen and that we can rightly stand in the presence of God because of what Jesus has accomplished for us. And this is why Paul can speak about death in just a really casual way. Maybe you've never noticed that before, but look at what he says in Philippians chapter 1. He says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Interesting. Look at just a couple verses later in verse 23. He says, My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. A verse that we've considered recently on Sunday mornings in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, listen, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Let me ask you, who talks like this? What person do you know that says, for me to die is gain? I cannot wait to be in the presence of my Savior. Come on, no one's talking like this unless you have hope of a future resurrection, unless you know what it is that Jesus has accomplished for you in his own death and resurrection, gaining victory over death and sin and the law. It only gets better from here. And we have a glimpse of what life will be like after we're resurrected. I want us to turn to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20. Look at verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And what's just being described here, I wanted us to turn here first, because what we read about, about all things being put under subjection to Christ, and lastly, death itself would be subjected to him, we see happen here in Revelation 20 that death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire, it's over. And all that's left then is this new heaven and this new earth for us to enjoy. Look at verse, excuse me, chapter 21. We'll read verses three and four. A description of what it is that awaits us. Verse three, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Turn over to chapter 22. Begin our reading in verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. 
They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, maybe the prospect of eternal life, if we had not just read it, seems a little bittersweet to us. Right? If it's anything like the life we live now, probably not all that interested, huh? If there really were some fountain of youth that we could go to and keep drinking from and extend this life, we're kind of like, nah, I'm good. <laughs> uh, I've known enough heartbreak and betrayal and suffering. No sense in me extending this life. But how about our resurrected bodies? And what is offered to us there? There's no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears. We get to be in the presence of our Savior forever. Does that not sound awesome? The things that have made this life so miserable are gone. Death has been defeated. We'll never die again. And it's just us and the Lord. That is what the resurrection of Christ has secured for us. Hope of a future resurrection of life with him. So finally, because I began this way, I think it's appropriate that maybe I'll ask you even, how then, from your perspective, should we incorporate the resurrection into how we present the gospel to the people? Any ideas? Miles. Yeah, certainly. I think we can say, listen, the resurrection of Christ proves that he has conquered death and has paved the way for us, so to speak, for us to follow him in eternal life. Any other ideas? Yeah, Barb. Yes, absolutely. Uh, point people to the fact, listen, people claim to be God all the time. It's not unusual. But what proves the validity of Jesus' message, his claims to actually be God and who he says he is, is that he rise or arose from the dead. Jesus himself used his resurrection as a sign. When people ask him for a sign on two separate occasions, he says, uh, remember the sign of Jonah? He was in the belly of the whale for three days. The sign I give you is that I'll be in the ground for three days. Jesus used his resurrection as a sign. Show people this is proof, this is evidence, this is confirmation that what Jesus says is true, and thus all of this is true. It is critical to how we present the gospel. It just kind of ties it all together. The resurrection is awesome. I hope you've seen that. We only have two more of these in our series, and I hope that just throughout the last, what, eight weeks now, that your view of Christ and what he's accomplished for us has been greatly increased. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We're grateful that your son has had victory over the grave, and you've taken the sting out of death for us. I pray that we would live boldly then. If we're not afraid of even our greatest enemy, then let's go out and live like it. And tell the world the hope that can be theirs if they just repent and place their faith in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.